developments and, and, and political developments and new understandings about the roles of men and women. Marriage at the time of the 14th Amendment was deeply gendered. Um, women had certain special rights and obligations and men had different rights and obligations. That was all wiped clean 30 years ago, constitutionally, by basically saying marriage law has to treat males and females the same. And well, once you do that, you've degendered marriage. Well, the Constitution says sex discrimination is problematic. It's not just the Supreme Court saying that. The 14th Amendment rightly understood said that, and I got lots of historical evidence for it, and I present it in the book, and it's a deep, profound birth equality principle. It's radical, we're still um, trying to catch up with it, just as that we the people do ordain and establish the Constitution is a radical idea, that we and the world are still trying to catch up. That's Akhil Reed Amar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University and author of The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. This week, we'll play for you the audio of a lecture that Amar gave at the Howenstein Center during Constitution Week 2016. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Few subjects of debate in America involve questions as large in scope or as serious in consequence as those surrounding the Constitution. How should we interpret the Constitution? What does it allow and what does it prohibit? Should it be read according to what it meant in the 18th century or what it could mean today? These questions seem even more important given recent calls to abolish the Electoral College, as well as the fact that the president-elect, Donald J. Trump, will have to nominate at least one person to the Supreme Court during his administration. Akhil Reed Amar, our speaker, is Sterling Professor of Law at Yale and one of the most important and prolific legal commentators in America. He often writes about constitutional law for popular publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and Slate. He was a consultant to the TV show The West Wing, and he's been a guest on The Colbert Report as well as Charlie Rose. Amar's most recent book, The Constitution Today, addresses most of the debates we hear about, from gun control to gay marriage, affirmative action to criminal procedure, Bill Clinton's impeachment to Obamacare. In this episode, Amar first discusses the origins and importance of the Constitution, when it was written, why it was written, and why he calls it, quote, the political equivalent of the Big Bang. Then Amar talks about the important constitutional debates raging today and frequently offers his take on not-yet-then President-elect Donald Trump. That and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Happy birthday. In case you forgot, uh, this is Constitution Week, marking the week uh, in September 1787, September 17th to be specific, but just the whole week, uh, in which the United States Constitution went public for the first time. Um, folks had been meeting at Philadelphia behind closed doors, and on September 17th, they unveiled their project to uh, America and to the world for possible ratification. The world would never be the same because up and down a continent, here are some, I've got a few slides, but take a look at this one. This is the first written, uh, this is the first time citizenry is going to, is seeing this proposal. 
a publisher in Philadelphia in September, 1787, September 19th to be specific, is choosing to publish the document, to make it public, as in a Republican form of government. It's the same root word, that word public, those of you who have taken Latin, as people, poplicus, we, as in we the people. No one's forcing that publisher to publish the thing. There's freedom of speech and of the press even before the First Amendment. He's choosing to do so. He's publishing the entire thing because it's short, not so judges can make stuff up, but so that ordinary people then and now, that's actually not my Howenstein Center um, copy, which they just gave me. Well, here's one, okay. And you can still read it today. It's still short. It's short so that ordinary people can read it, not so that the judges can make stuff up. And he publishes the whole thing, start to finish, uh, and he's choosing, as do other publishers at the time, to put that, pre what we call the preamble, it's the word that's not in the document, but uh, to put it in particularly big type because he recognizes that's a big deal. Other printers do as well. They're choosing to do that because that's a sentence that changes the world. We, the people of the United States, dot, 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 do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We're actually going to get to do something. We're going to vote on it. Up and down a continent, we're going to get to vote on how we and our posterity are to be governed. And that's a big deal. Joe Biden, if he were here, would say it's a big effing deal, but he's not here. So I'll just say, you know, because he'd speak to you straight, um, that it's a big deal. The world will never be the same. Never before in human history had so many people been allowed to vote on how they and our posterity were to be governed. In eight of the 13 states, property qualifications were lowered or eliminated compared to what they were for ordinary elections in this special we do election. We did something. Constitution is not just a text, it's a deed. It's an act. It's a doing, an ordainment, an establishment. Sometimes when you say a certain thing, you do it. If I say, let there be a tree, there is no tree there because I don't have that godlike power. But if I say to you, I warn you, I've just warned you. If I say to you, I promise, I've just promised. Um, I accept, yes, you've accepted. At, I'm telling now the, 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 the students, the young uh, folks in the crowd, thank you for coming, by the way, that in a magic moment in your life, when you get up and you say, I do, be very, very, very careful because you will, ha you will have just done it. Um, so, so that's, the, in fancy philosophic terms, that's what's called a performative utterance, an illocutionary utterance. But um, we did something, and the world would never be the same, up and down a continent. Happy birthday to us and to the world, because there, there, in the world, there is B.C. and A.D., you see, before the Constitution and after the document, because there have been a few democracies in the world before America, very few. Um, at the time of the Constitution, in September, um, let's say September 10th, 1787, outside the United States, outside America, there's self-government in uh, Britain to some extent, although they have a hereditary monarch who has real power, he reigns and doesn't just rule. Uh, excuse me, he, uh, he rules and doesn't just reign. Um, uh, they have a, a hereditary house of lords with real power. Um, they've got an established church, but they have a house of commons that uh, involves uh, self-government and jury trial. So some self-government there. The Dutch are in the process of losing theirs. The Swiss have some self-government. Um, they don't have cities or banks or any real commerce uh, 
Uh, Mitt Romney's not interested in them yet because there's, there's no money there. But, but that's it, an entire planet. The rest of the planet, kings, emperors, czars, sultans, Mughal lords, tribal chieftains, thugs, all. And so it has been for almost all of recorded history. You see, very little democracy on the planet. Very little um, before 1787. And the ones that tried to make a go of it weren't able to. Athens, pre-imperial Rome, Florence, and even at their best, they're tiny little city-states, smaller than Grand Rapids by an order of magnitude. They're people who worship the same god or gods, preach, uh, 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 speak the same language, not warm weather and cold weather people getting together, not multiple climate zones. And they can't make a go of it against internal dissension, and they can't repel external assault. And even at their best, ancient Athens, the Periclean constitution, the Cleisthenic constitution, they're not adopted democratically. One man, typically, the lawgiver, hands the law down from on high. And the British constitution's never been so-called. It's a group of, it's a cluster of institutions, practices, customs, and, and that have created, evolved over the years. Well, they never reduced their first principles in Britain to a single text, I see I wanted to get the, the proper one here, um, <laughs> voted on by parliament, much less by the British people. They never did that. And the articles, and, and the Declaration of Independence was not put to a vote in 1776. And none of the state constitutions in 1776 was put to a vote. Uh, and the Articles of Confederation uh, wasn't put to a vote, but we put this thing to a vote up and down a continent. Happy birthday to us. The world would never be the same because today, half the planet by land mass and population is democratic on the American model. Um, and, that's and it's because of the military, legal, political, cultural, um, social success of the American constitutional project that a billion people in India are self-governing today. When my parents are born, they weren't. They're people, from, you know, a king of Britain and an unelected parliament um, from Britain ruling them, just as happened in the American colonies. And today, it's a billion people, a billion with a B, vast subcontinent, many religions, cultures, all the rest, a written constitution, free and fair elections, multiple political parties, alternating power, religious toleration and respect Donald Trump. All of these things, rule of law, on the American model, and, that, and, and that's because we, the people of the United States, did it and other places emulated. France, which had an absolutist monarch at the time, it now, it now has a republic. It's you know, almost as good as California, not quite, but, but, and I'll tell you why. Because California has more religious equality and toleration, Donald Trump, than, than France is, and, and France is moving in the wrong direction as we speak, I'm not joking, because it's getting the wrong lesson from one of our two presidential candidates about religious toleration and equality. I'm going to tell you what I really think. I am. So happy birthday to us. We give the world democracy in a way that didn't. So, and it's not just Western Europe. It's, it's, it's that wall fell thanks to Ronald Reagan and others. He says it's not a partisan thing. It's just an anti-Trump thing. There's a difference. <laughs> There's a total difference. So Ronald Reagan said, tear down that wall, following in a tradition of Jack Kennedy, who says, I am a Berliner. You know, Truman and Ike, Johnson and Nixon and Reagan um, and Carter, Republicans and Democrats, and we brought down that wall after World War II, because um, we won World War II and we defeated Hitler and we defeated Mussolini, and we ultimately prevailed against Stalin, and that is because the American Constitutional Project 
and the world, so not just Western Europe, it's, it's Eastern Europe, it's a whole subcontinent in India, it's Japanese, we're now self-governing, it's Mexico, which has a, a, a fledgling democracy in a way that wasn't true 30 years ago, it's some of South America, and we give this to the world more than anyone else. Happy birthday to us, and it's a September story. So that's why I said happy birthday. Biggest story in the world, politically. BC and AD. But I also said happy birthday. Now from the sublime to the ridiculous, I have an, a confession to make. This is embarrassing. But September is my birth month. <laughs> um, and I was born in this state, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, because this country's great universities have been, historically, at least in the modern era, open to people from all lands. My parents are born in undivided India. They haven't met each other. They come to the University of Michigan, and they're allowed to study here, and there's no religious test when they want to come to the United States, Donald Trump, you know, to, to study here. Um, uh, I happen to be an adult convert Christian. They are not, um, but they are allowed, you see, to come study here. It's not just that the world is becoming more American. It's America is becoming more global. We, uniquely in the world, are the place where the, where the, the grandchildren of all the other peoples of the world actually learn to work together. Um, uh, because of places like the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor and this great university, and I'm about to go drive tonight to actually the University of Illinois where my brother is the dean of the College of Law down there. Many great public universities. America is becoming increasingly global. We cannot shut out the rest of the world, nor should we want to. And the world is becoming increasingly American, so happy birthday to us. And I'm part of that story because I'm born in Ann Arbor, Michigan because actually this country was welcoming uh, of people of, of, of many backgrounds, um, faith traditions, languages, um, and the rest. So yeah, happy birthday to me, and I, I'm back in my birth state, so that feels very special. I said from the um, um, uh, uh, sublime um, uh, to the ridiculous, and to be maybe even more ridiculous, I just want to share with you one other um, birth event. Um, which is that um, this week is the birth week. Yesterday was the birth day of my latest book, which is called The Constitution Today. <laughs> this is the pub date. This is my first, thank you, my, my first public event um, uh, for this, this book that was born yesterday. Um, uh, and so thank you for being here to celebrate uh, these birthdays with me. Um, I've told you already a little bit about the Constitution and what I've said about the Constitution you'll find in other books that I've written like the Constitution of Biography. I just gave you a little pricey of, let's say, the first five pages of that book. It's called America's Constitution of Biography, um, where I tell you about how we got started. Uh, it has the unpretentious title of chapter one of uh, In the Beginning. Um, uh, because I do begin believe that this is where the modern world begins. The modern world was made in a time and a place. The place is the United States of America. The time is 1787-88, beginning when it goes public. That's the year that changed everything. That is the hinge of human history. I believe there is 
from a secular point of view, I, I sort of happen to be Christian, but you know, that's neither here nor there, but from a secular point of view, there is BC before the Constitution, AD after the document. This thing changes the world. There's no democracy on the planet of any real significance to speak of, or very little, for the eons before this thing comes along. And now over half the planet, democracies reign. We won the last century. I like our odds going forward if we stay true to our best selves. And that's a question on the ballot this election and every election, but especially this election. So um, that's the story that I tell in America's Constitutional Biography, which walks you, my fellow citizens, through the written Constitution start to finish. So of course, I start with the preamble, and that's actually a big deal, that first sentence. There's a lot going on. We actually did something. We put the thing to a vote up and down a continent, and people could be for it or against it, and no one is censored or suppressed. No one is voted off the island. Amazing, robust, uninhibited, wide open, free speech. It's raucous, um, but people who oppose the thing are not um, um, uh, told that they have to leave. They become presidents of the United States, George Clint Elbridge Gerry, Vice President of the United States. Um, uh, um, uh, um, oh, that was, uh, that, uh, uh, pres President is, is James Monroe, Vice President is Elbridge Gerry and, and George Clinton, Justices on the Supreme Court, Samuel Chase. So we disagreed violently, Federalists, Anti-Federalists, but the thing went through and the losers acquiesced and then they were brought into the fold, apropos people working together, and the result is a Bill of Rights. These people who disagreed about ratification got together immediately afterwards. That's impressive. That's really impressive. Good for us, happy birthday to us. That's the story told in America's Constitution of Biography. That's how it begins. It, the first sentence is also unpretentious. The chapter is called In the Beginning. And the first sentence is also very unpretentious, as in the Gospel according to St. John, um, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and, and of course, Genesis. Um, uh, but um, the first sentence in a more secular tradition is, it started with a bang. And I want you to think about Sheldon Cooper and Raj Kutrapali and, and their friends, because I do mean to conjure up an image of the Big Bang. This is the moment that generates a certain democratic momentum that will change everything in America and across the world. It will radiate in time across America and our Constitution will get more and more democratic and egalitarian because of the energy created by this Big Bang moment and it will radiate across space, across the continents um, and create a far more democratic world than anything that existed before. It is the political equivalent of a Big Bang and not every American understands that story. We actually don't understand what we did and I say we even though they weren't my ancestors, but I'm allowed to join that story, you see, um, even though my parents weren't born here. Um, uh, and um, now, what's the Constitution today, the new book? Um, it's about the issues of our lifetime. It's not just a pure history book. It's about the, the issues of the last 20 years. It pulls together various essays that I've written for my fellow citizens for in places like Time Magazine, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, which is a conservative um, uh, uh, publication, uh, The New York Times, which is not so much uh, a conservative um, uh, publication. So these essays on 
what seemed to me to be the most important thing going on in the headlines that month, that week, and I've put these together um, and organized them and commented on them, and that's what I'd like to talk with you about. I want to get your, um, uh, I want to actually now just basically have a, a, a democratic conversation. What do you want to hear more about? Let me tell you what's in the book, and then you can tell me what you want to hear more about, and I'll tell you some of this, um, I'll give you a little bit more detail. So there are 10 chapters, and chapter one is about the presidency. Um, and I talk particularly about whether we are witnessing today um, a new kind of rise of political dynasties of various sorts, all sorts of, sort, uh, of, of dynasties, and what the framers might have thought about dynasty. The presidency return to dynasty question mark. Chapter two is about the vice presidency, um, an office that seems insignificant until something happens to a president or even a presidential candidate, which I talk about here, what happens when a presidential candidate has a, a hiccup attack, um, a, a coughing spell. I wrote it a long time ago, but I act that hypothetical, pretty close to it is here. What we do, not just when a president um, is indisposed, but when a presidential candidate um, becomes um, uh, uh, temporarily or permanently disabled. And the chapter borrowing from uh, John Adams is entitled The Vice Presidency, Nothing But Maybe Everything. He says very famously in a letter to Abigail, I am nothing, he's the first vice president, but I might be everything. <laughs> um, so if you want to talk about the vice presidency, that's uh, on the table. Chapter three, presidency, vice presidency, about the Congress. And uh, the chapter is, is subtitled, How to Fix a Dysfunctional Branch. Um, so we could talk about some of the problems of Congress, the filibuster, uh, congressional oversight, um, uh, and other congressional dysfunctions. Chapter four, since I'm going through basically the branches of government here, is uh, about the judiciary, who judges the judges? How should we think about judicial selection? That, um, for example, if there, when there's a Supreme Court vacancy, state judicial selection procedures. Um, um, how to think about basically what we do when the court grossly misbehaves. Um, so uh, the presidency, the vice presidency, the Congress, the Judiciary, those are the first four chapters. Um, then I have a section, the modern branches, on uh, American culture wars. Um, and I have one chapter on criminal procedure from OJ to DNA, all sorts of issues of, of crime and punishment in America. Um, there's another chapter on, um, it's called Citizens Disunited. Um, and it's about really uncontroversial things like race and affirmative action, gun control, uh, campaign finance, reform, same-sex marriage, all the, the, the stuff that we, of course, all agree on. Um, uh, but then that section ends on a note of a uh, more hopeful note. What is it that we do agree on? And it's, uh, it's about constitutional anniversaries, constitutional birthdays. Anniversaries are occasions when we have to remember who we once were. Birthdays are an occasion for us to, to recall 
um, um, some very significant things in our personal or collective um, history. So it's called Remembering to Remember, and it's all about these happy birthday essays that I've written over the years and how to think about the American Constitutional Project more generally. I've told you a little bit about that already, but there's more if you want to hear about that chapter. And then the last three chapters, for each of the last three presidents, they're called presidential dramas, I picked one experience or issue that I thought history would um, think is particularly significant, one important constitutional um, controversy or, or, or issue. For President Clinton, it was um, the first President Clinton. It was his um, impeachment. For um, George W. Bush, it was his very unusual, his unpopular, if you will, election, having lost the popular vote but won in the Electoral College and, and thinking about Bush versus Gore and, and Electoral College reform. And for the and current incumbent, it's all about Obamacare, which I thought was perhaps the most significant constitutional controversy of um, his uh, administration. Okay, so that's what the book is all about. Uh, and now it's your turn. For the rest of our time together, I basically would invite you to come to these microphones and ask a question or make a comment um, uh, about something you'd like to hear more about. Hi. Uh, the Supreme Court is supposed to be apolitical, is it? Not entirely, um, and by design. That's not just a, a bug, it's a feature. By design, we have a system in which judges are picked politically. You don't have, it doesn't have to be that way. You could have a system in effect in which judges pick other judges. Here's how the Yale Law School faculty works in our minds. <laughs> the best legal scholars in the world pick the next generation of the best legal scholars in the world who then grow up and pick the next generation of best legal scholars in the world. It, we're deluded in thinking that, but it's a self-perpetuating Weberian um, a, um, sort of meritocratic civil service model. It's, it's, it's not political. You don't put things to a vote. It's not who um, uh, is willing to pay the most money. We don't auction it off. We don't put it to a vote. Um, the Catholic Church, well, the Pope picks cardinals who pick the Pope who pick cardinals, and um, so that's a, 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 a sort of a, a self-perpetuating system. Well, that's not how the Constitution works. The Constitution, by design, makes the process of judicial selection political. Presidents pick justices. Presidents pick lower federal court judges. The justices don't pick each other. They don't even pick the lower federal court judges. They don't get to pick their own leaders. They don't pick their chief the way the House of Representatives picks its chief. Paul Ryan or the Senate picks its chief, um, Mitch McConnell. They don't get to do that. They don't get to pick their underlings. The way presidents pick cabin officers. Presidents pick justices. Justices do not pick presidents. Bush versus Gore was a disgrace. And I say that in the book, and I've just explained why. And I hope you at least follow the conceptual logic here that judges aren't supposed to pick presidents, presidents are supposed to pick judges, and Bush versus Gore inverts that. Now, once they're picked, 
they can thumb their nose uh, at, at, at the powers that pick them because they have life tenure and undiminishable salary after that. And I have some essays on whether that's the best model of judicial independence, because no state except for Rhode Island follows it. Would a better model of judicial independence, for example, be a 50, and no, um, none of our de the other great democracies in the world have life tenure, but they have models of judicial independence. A fixed term, 15 years, 18 I think would be particularly nice because it divides nicely by nine, which is not fixed in the Constitution, but is part of our tradition. So you could have 18-year fixed terms, that would be independent, and maybe after that point, the justices in effect either rotate off the Supreme Court and serve on lower federal courts, or serve as backbenchers who, who do administrative stuff and, and, and other things and fill in only when the court is short-staffed. Would that be a better model of judicial independence than life tenure? Um, most states have either age limits and or um, term limits, and the best states, which do have judicial independence rather than perpetual elections, because I'm not sure ordinary citizens are great at evaluating whether the reasons judges gave, they, they can evaluate whether they like the result or not, but that's not what judging is about. It's about whether you follow the law and the, whether the reasons for it, and that's very difficult to evaluate unless you, uh, uh, you've read the briefs and all the rest. So I don't like, actually, judicial elections very much. Um, but I do like a model of judicial independence of a certain term. But is life tenure the best model as opposed to 18-year terms or um, uh, um, retirement at a fixed age? Because when you have life tenure, it creates incentives to pick 25-year-olds um, um, who will um, uh, project, uh, who will have the maximum power to shape the, the future for your political um, vision if, you, if you're the, the, uh, um, the, the, the appointing uh, uh, president. So, Political appointment, apolitical or independent um, uh, term of office, that's sort of the model. And what's particularly awkward is if the judges ever um, align in partisan ways, they're supposed to wear black, not red or blue, and Bush versus Gore was particularly awkward because not only did they intervene in something that wasn't their call, Congress is supposed to decide contested election, presidential elections as it did in 1800-1801 with Burr Jefferson uh, Adams as it did in um, uh, uh, 1824 uh, with um, uh, uh, Jackson um, and uh, um, and John Quincy Adams, as it did in 1876 with um, Hayes Tilden. So not only was Bush versus Gore a disgrace because the court decided what the Constitution actually gave to Congress, how to resolve a disputed presidential election, it was also a disgrace because the court divided along such a, an, a naked kind of partisan um, uh, fracture. It's not just that it was on the key issue. I know some of you were taught it was 7-2. No, it was 5-4, to four, and I'm happy to explain why in detail, and I do um, in, in several places. But it was a partisan 5-4. I mean, someone, you know, five have to beat four. It's the greater number, but it doesn't have to be a partisan lineup, and, and, and they're not, it's not quite supposed to be that. Um, and uh, so, but we have a political selection process by design. The Supreme Court is on the ballot this election. And if you want it to be Merrick Garland, you vote D. And if you don't, you vote R. And it's four to four on the court today for the first time, basically in my adult lifetime, for the first time in 50 years, the Republicans are at risk of not having a Supreme Court majority. They, Republican appointees have had a Supreme Court majority ever since 1970. 
The House has gone back and forth. The Senate has gone back and forth. The presidency has gone back and forth. Since 1970, Republican appointees have had a majority in the Supreme Court. And now, that's on the ballot. That's up for grabs. That's a political decision to be made by the people of Michigan and other states. And the way they make it is by deciding who they vote for president and who, um, who they vote for Senate. You ready for the next question? Sure. Okay. Unless you don't think I answered that no, one, in I which case, <laughs> okay. Uh, Michigan's uh, gay marriage law mm -hmm. held unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. I have uh, read your other books. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you feel about that decision from a constitutional point of view? I, I got the impression that your thoughts were <clears throat> that if it was not a fundamental right, and marriage has never been defined as a fundamental right until now, that the uh, U.S. Uh, Constitution defers to the states to make their own decision in such matters. Well, it's a great topic. Thank you for asking. Um, I disagree with most of what you said, and, um, and I'll give you my reasons, and it's in the book, and um, th those are some of the pages I'm most proud of. Uh, so first, just as a matter of case law, um, the Supreme Court, as early as Loving versus Virginia, 1967, did say marriage is a fundamental right, and that was a view that's been repeated in several other cases, including Zablocki versus Redhale, and, 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 and a bunch of others that I don't want to go into, but what do you mean a fundamental right? What about polygamous marriage, Professor? So, so I actually don't place um, my own particular emphasis on a right to marry as such, even though that is a central to Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court in the Obergefell case, but just because I'm a professor and sort of have to correct you know, a statement if it's not true, the Supreme Court had recognized marriage as a fundamental right long before um, the same-sex marriage line of cases came along, but I'm not sure that how helpful it is because, you know, can, um, uh, can four people get married, and if not, you know, um, so um, what are the rules? Can, can, can first cousins um, get married? Can, can siblings get married? Can um, uh, parents marry their adult children? And so we, you know, so, so um, but the court has said marriages, had said marriage is a fundamental right a uh, long time ago. Um, so I don't think we should make stuff up. I think stuff should be rooted in the Constitution, and uh, so here's how I um, uh, proceed um, in this book. Uh, uh, by the way, so the, the chapter on the culture wars says here are at least four issues, just so you know where I'm coming from, because I've said some very harsh things about Trump, and if you get me going, I'll say way harsher ones, because I spend my life thinking about this, um, the Constitution, and I never said anything like this about Mitt Romney or John McCain or George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush or Ronald Reagan, and I actually supported Republican candidates in years past. I never said anything like this. Um, so, but just so you, you know, because I have been very hard on him, um, let me tell you about four issues in that chapter. Same-sex marriage, affirmative action, a, a right to, um, to the Second Amendment, whether you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-protection, um, a handgun, um, and Citizens United. The liberals won two of those in the Supreme Court, same-sex marriage and affirmative action. The Grutter case from which state? I can't remember. Um, it was the University of Michigan, Grutter and Gratz. Um, the liberals won two, Obergefell, same-sex marriage, and 
affir uh, affirmative action was upheld um, at the law school at the University of Michigan in the Grutter case. The conservatives won too. Uh, they said that you have a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, and they said uh, this campa uh, campaign finance law, there's a, a right to spend money for political campaigns in, in vast amounts. Um, so here are the names of the cases. Um, Grutter, um, and, uh, on the liberal side, and Obergefell, and on the conservative side, Heller, also uh, um, a citizen, uh, 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 city of Chicago versus McDonald, on Second Amendment, Heller, um, and um, Citizens United. Those are famous cases. A lot of people have heard of those cases. Not a single justice was in all four of those majorities. The liberals tended to vote left, conservatives tended to vote right, but no justice really swung on those four. I support each of those decisions, and I, s I made my position clear long before each of those four decisions came down. So with the conservatives on two of them, and the liberals on two of them on four of the biggest issues that really have, have uh, come up. Um, so if you want to ask me about guns, great, or Citizens United, I will defend it. Uh, if you want to ask me about how we think about affirmative action, we can talk about that. But on same-sex marriage, Tony Kennedy is right. The, the dissenters are wrong. Tony Kennedy's opinion is not perfect. Um, the dissenters' opinion don't even come close to engaging what the real arguments are. And because Tony Kennedy didn't give you the best arguments, you might not even, you might think it's about a right to marriage. So let's pull out our constitutions together and do this. Please open to the 14th Amendment. It just happens to be the most, you know, significant sentence probably in all of American constitutional law after that first one, the we the people. And this is very personal to me. Why am I a constitutional scholar? I'll tell you why. Because this kid with Indian parents was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the first sentence of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution makes him a citizen of the United States just like everyone else born in that hospital that day. Whether his parents are citizens or not Donald Trump, whether they were here, frankly, legally or not, Donald Trump. Whether he's black or white, born black or white, Donald Trump, or whether she's born female or he's born male, I'm gonna tell you what that sentence means because one of the two people running for president gets that sentence and the other, not so much, by which I mean not at all. And this is the foundation stone, this is you know, the, the cornerstone of the modern constitution, of Lincoln's constitution, of the new birth of freedom. Because the original constitution was not about birth equality, it was about slavery. And then we repudiated that thanks to a fellow from the Midwest named Lincoln and his Midwest-based party called the Republican Party. It's a great, great party. And here's Actually, it's, this is basically link, um, so this is actually an early electoral college map. This is a modern electoral college map. You see the country hasn't changed that much, in fact. Florida's always close, uh, Virginia, North Carolina. So the country's pretty similar. Here's the kick in the head. This, which election is this, by the way? So one, at least one of you should recognize this one. Which election? 2008, and why isn't it 2012? Because? Yeah. 
Barack Obama in 2008 carried Indiana and North Carolina, um, and he didn't in 2000. That's 2008. The other one, 1896. America's basically the same, same divisions. But here's the kick in the head. Blue up, that's Lincoln's coalition up there. Blue, that would be the Republican Party. The parties have flipped. The tall, skinny, constitutional lawyer from Illinois used to be Lincoln. Today, his name is Barack Hussein Obama. And he wins the same states that Lincoln wins and loses the same states that Lincoln loses. And the party, the so-called party of Lincoln has become the party of the Confederacy, half of which is a basket of deplorables. <laughs> I believe that, and I will defend it because I've actually done the math. And, and math is actually not that much a matter of opinion. Let's actually look at the math together, my friends. It's, and I'm not running for anything. I have to tell you the truth. I don't have to be, I'm not, my job is not to be partisan. I, on some things I side with the Republicans. Citizens United, gun, uh, guns in the home. But on this one, you see um, uh, Lincoln and the Northerners say, we are going to change the fundamental nature of our republic which is based on slavery, unfortunately. And now, here's the sentence that changes the world a second time. Everyone born in the United States is going to be born a citizen and therefore a full and equal citizen with full and equal rights. Here's the sentence. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and any state where in their reside. So what does that mean? That means they're equal citizens. They're born equal. They're created equal. This is Lincoln's reinterpretation of Jefferson. As he says at Gettysburg, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men, by which he meant persons, are created equal. That sentence says, so what the hell does that mean? Well, you know, these sentences, like the preamble and this, they're so familiar to us, you don't even stop and think about what they're saying. We do ordain and establish a constitution. What are we doing? We're putting the thing to a vote. That changes the world. What it means to be created equal, to be born equal, is that you're born equal whether you're black or white, because you're born with a race. And from now on, the law can't basically discriminate against you because you were born with dark skin. <laughs> you're born equal, whether you're born male or female. That's ERA, basically. That's in the 14th Amendment, in fact, rightly understood. And people at the time actually understood it that way, and I give you evidence for that in my books. You're born equal, whether you're born in wedlock or out of wedlock. The government should not discriminate against you because you happen to be born so-called illegitimate. You're born equal whether you're born first in your family or fifth. You shouldn't get extra inheritance by law just because you're first born. No primogeniture and entail here, thank you, um, after this um, idea of birth equality. You're born equal whether you're born Jew or Gentile or Muslim for that matter, Donald Trump. You know why he wanted to focus on that birth certificate? He said it 10 times, you can Google it. I've seen him say it 10 times. It's because he thought the birth certificate probably said Muslim. And he wanted to prove that Barack Obama was born a Muslim. Well, so what? Even if he was. He's born equal and he can decide whether he wants to stay a Muslim if he was born a Muslim or be a Christian or whatever. I'm an adult convert. No. So you're born equal, black or white, Male or female, 
in wedlock or out of wedlock, firstborn or fifthborn, Jew or Gentile, born equal whether your citizen, parents are citizens or non-citizens, Donald Trump, even whether they're here legally or not. We don't inquire that. We ask whether you were born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And by the way, if we're starting to inquire about who your parents are, can we really prove who your daddy is? Really? Do we really want to go there? Because a whole bunch of people, their daddies turn out to be not the folks that they thought you know, were their daddies and who thought they were um, their daddies. Okay, so you're born And now, here's how I close loop. You are born equal whether you're born gay or straight. Some people were born that way and they should not be demeaned or discriminated against because of the conditions of their birth. And that's not just true of marriage law. That's true when the government is acting as an employer. This is the government. This is the obligations of the government. Uh, when it's acting um, to enforce criminal laws about sexual conduct, it's true across the range. It's not limited to marriage. And it has nothing to do with polygamy because people aren't born polygamous or not. There's no sort of suggestion that they are. There are no vast numbers of our fellow citizens rising up and saying, I think, pretty authentically, and I'm in no position to contradict them. I was born this way. That's what Gaga you know, her song is all about. And, and my friend Sam Alito, he is my friend, he tells me and he's told the world he, he quite likes that song. Um, but I don't think he took it seriously in his dissent in Obergefell, and I don't think any of the justices did. And you live in a world which is not the 14th Amendment world. See, because they didn't know the internet, but you have to take freedom of the press, and which is about pressing ink on paper and apply that principle to the internet, to radio, to television, to tweeting, whatever that is. I've never been able to figure it out. I'm, I'm, I'm about 10 years behind the time. You have to take the Fourth Amendment, which is about searches and seizures, and apply it to, to wiretaps and ray gun technology and, and all sorts of fancy um, um, uh, uh, search technology and surveillance technology. You have to take the principles and apply them in a new situation. They did not live in a world where people who were born female could become male and people who were born male could become female, but that actually is your world. So gender has been profoundly transformed by modern social developments and, and, and political developments and new understandings about the roles of men and women. Marriage at the time of the 14th Amendment was deeply gendered. Um, women had certain special rights and obligations and men had different rights and obligations. That was all wiped clean 30 years ago, constitutionally, by basically saying marriage law has to treat males and females the same. And well, once you do that, you've degendered marriage. Well, the Constitution says Sex discrimination is problematic. It's not just the Supreme Court saying that. The 14th Amendment rightly understood said that, and I got lots of historical evidence for it, and I present it in the book, and it's a deep, profound birth equality principle. It's radical. We're still um, trying to catch up with it, just as that we, the people, do ordain and establish the Constitution is a radical idea that we and the world are still trying to catch up to. And what I just said is controversial today, and it will not be controversial in 20 years. And if you want to bet some money on it, let's especially, I'd be happy to take a lot of your money. I'm a social scientist. I've looked at the data that this generation gets it. My generation and uh, above, not so much. We're going to die first. <laughs> and they're not going to change their minds on this. They're going to change their minds on taxes and other things. As they get older, they're not going to like taxes so much um, um, when they start making money. Um, but on 
Human sexuality, the views that they formed early in life will stay with them. There's just a lot of data on that. And so in 20 years, people are going to say, the same way we today say, how could decent people have been in favor of slavery or segregation? I say that to you as just as a simple predictive matter. I actually am a political scientist as well. I've looked at a lot of data. And if you disagree with me, let's figure out a good bet. You know, because I'm, I'm happy, you know, to take your money. Uh, John Adams, you and I are on the same level. We had nothing to do with writing the Constitution. But you did. John Adams, you said? John Adams didn't write the Constitution. <laughs> yes, yes. But you said your name is John Adams? No. Oh. I said we have something in oh. common. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I said you didn't write the Constitution and neither did I, mm -hmm. nor John Adams. Okay, okay. But would you agree Fair with enough. his opinion or disagree with his opinion that our Constitution is, is for a moral and religious people, it is completely insufficient for any other? Great question. I ha talk about that in, su in some length in chapter one. Um, and I remind you, because this is a presidential election season, about the rules of presidential eligibility, what they say and what they don't say. So the Constitution's not a religious document, but it's not an anti-religious document. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, for example, that if you, when you take your oath of office as President of the United States, want to swear on a Bible, you get to swear on a Bible, as George Washington did, and as most of his successors have done. If you want to say, as most modern presidents have said, when you take your oath of office, so help me God, you're allowed to say, so help me God. But now I'm going to tell you what actually Article 2 does say. Let's open it up and read it together. You can see if I've gotten it right by memory. Before he shall enter into basically the presidency, why don't you just find me that sentence. You know, he shall utter the following, he shall take the following oath before he shall enter into, you know, his, his duty. This is an Article 2. Someone wanted to just remind us which section. I don't want to look at it because you're going to think I'm cheating on the oath, but I, which, by, which I have memorized because I was just getting ready as an eighth grader just, just in case my country ever called I, me to be president. Can I yeah. clarify my question? Yeah. My question was, do you agree with John Adams that our Constitution is for a moral and religious people is completely inadequate for any other? I, d I disagree with the, f the, okay, the full you. implications of that statement, and I will tell you why. Because I said, it's not a religious document. It's not an anti-religious document. So John Adams, in fact, wasn't there. And he can't rebut me now, because he's not here either. Um, uh, and, oh boy, he says a lot of things that aren't so good, like that a sedition law is constitutional, which we think today is not so correct. Um, he says lots of things. I borrow, sometimes he has great bon mots, my chapter two is nothing but maybe everything, that's John Adams. But no, what he says isn't quite and fully right, and I'm telling you why. Look what's not in that oath of office. The word, so help me God. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I shall faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. You guys are reading long, right? I got that right? Okay. Not so help me God. Most state constitutions had so help me God in them. That was a pointed and purposeful omission. In order to take the coronation oath 
in England, you have to say, so help me God. You actually have to swear on a Bible, which the Constitution says, says nothing about. The oath has to be administered not by Chancellor Livingston, but by an Anglican bishop or archbishop. And by the way, the Bible that you have to, to, to swear on, that Douay Bible, that Catholic Bible with the Apocrypha thing, no, that's not going to cut it. It has to be a proper King James Bible, thank you. You have to swear in your coronation oath to be defender of the faith, and you have to say so, help me God. All of those elements are pointedly and purposefully omitted from the Constitution. Here's what's also omitted. Any mention of the deity. Now, I'm going to tell you why it's actually not an anti-religious document, but, but let's just, um, from, this is from chapter one. Uh, so, the neither the preamble nor any other clause of the Constitution, this is from page 40 and 41 of the, of the book, um, explicitly mentioned the creator or nature's God or the supreme judge of the world, as have the Declaration of Independence and the New York Constitution of 1777. Didn't mention the great governor of the world, as had the Articles of Confederation, or the great governor of the universe, as has had the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 or the great legislator of the universe, the supreme being, the great creator and preserver of the universe. That's all a direct quote from the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. Who wrote the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780? John Adams. Right, so yeah, I get it that he thought that, but the Constitution and the other folks, not so much. They pointedly omitted all of that. The South Carolina Constitution used the word God nine times, a word that explicitly appeared in every revolution-era state constitution, save Virginia's. So, boy, if there's ever a purposeful and pointed omission, I think when you see all the other documents and it's not there, you think, hmm, that's interesting. Now, they also say in Article 6 that there shall be no federal religious test. No state constitution, for any federal office holding, no state constitution has such a provision, not one. Every state constitution except Virginia's actually has a religious test for office holding. Every single one, it's in almost every state constitution, including John Adams, in seven, uh, the one that he wrote in 1780. And the only state that doesn't have it is Virginia, and that's by mere statute, the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom, drafted by Madison and Jefferson in 1785. Well, that's an interesting pointed omission. George Washington, although he swears on the Bible, he's not a conventional churchgoer. He doesn't take communion as adult. He never says Christ. He says providence. He thinks that God has intervened in, uh, to save him and the American Revolution multiple times. But he's not an orthodox Christian by conventional um, terms. Of the other guys on Mount Rushmore, Jefferson, not even a churchgoer. Lincoln, not a churchgoer. They're moral people. They, um, you know, what exactly they believe, God, providence, the force. These are difficult questions, and people actually over the course of a lifetime sometimes, you know, move um, on this, and the Constitution doesn't have a test for any of this. And one of the many things that I don't like about Donald Trump is that he is trying to bring sectarian affiliation into the conversation pointedly in violation of this extraordinary tradition by saying, oh, about Ben Carson, those Seventh-day Adventists, I don't know too much about them. And he says, oh, how many evangelicals come from Cuba when he's talking about Marco Rubio 
and Ted Cruz, and oh, no Muslims can come to the United States, and maybe even the ones here have to go, even if they want to study at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor or anything else. My parents happen not to be Muslim, by the way, but um, um, they're Hindu. Um, I'm Christian. Um, my brother, I have no idea what he is. Um, um, and that's because people change over the course of a lifetime, and we don't have religious tests, and he's calling into question all that, and it's really rich because I've watched him a lot. I actually know my Bible, and I don't think he does when he says, like, 2 Corinthians. No, it's not 2 Corinthians. It's not 2 Corinthians walked into a bar. It's 2 Corinthians. <laughs> it's 2 Corinthians. So he is playing you for fools, my fellow citizens, when he's trying to inject sectarian. Look, the Constitution was founded by a group of people who were overwhelmingly mainstream Protestants. And yet, here's what's amazing. Of the four guys, and this is all in chapter one, of the four guys who ran for the presidency and vice presidency the last time around, only one is a mainstream Protestant. And his name, say it with me, is Barack Hussein Obama. Because you see, Joe Biden's a Catholic. And Paul Ryan's a Catholic. And Mitt Romney is a Mormon. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints didn't even exist as an or organized um, a church at the time of the founding. And they're not, and I'm not calling, I'm not saying this to, to demonize them, draw attention to them. I'm saying, isn't it great that we didn't talk about that four years ago? I'm proud of the fact that the Democratic Party did not try to demagogue that on Mitt Romney. And I actually wrote a piece saying, here's an argument for Mitt Romney. His election would signal, in fact, um, a religious inclusion and tolerance. It would be a great message to the world, you see, that, that we don't actually have a de facto sectarian test. He's a moral man, but you said religion and moral, religious and moral, and I don't know. Um, there are many moral people that might have a different understanding of, of, of the ultimate truth of the universe. There are nine justices of the Supreme Court. There were before Scalia. Six Catholics, three Jews. No mainstream Protestant, and we're not making a big deal about that, and that's great. And if Merrick Garland is selected, it'd be five Catholics and four Jews. Wonderful, fine, no problem. And we're not calling attention to it. This is good, this is progress. We do not want to go back on that. I told you Paul Ryan is a Catholic, so is John Boehner, and we don't talk about that. It's not a big deal. We don't talk about the fact that um, uh, um, uh, 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 Reed, Harry Reid um, from uh, Nevada, when he was Senate Majority Leader, was and, and remains, presumably, a Mormon. Um, is McConnell, it's an interesting name, Catholic or Protestant, Mitch McConnell? Who cares? He happens to be Protestant, but who cares? Okay? It's good that we're not talking about that. So the Constitution is not a religious document. It's not an anti-religious document. We do not exclude people from the public square because they want to profess their full identity, because they want to say, I happen to be a person of faith. That's a deeply important part of who I am, and I'm going to present myself honestly to you, um, and I'm going to say, so help me God. I'm going to say in Jesus' name, that's okay to do, and it's okay not to do. So it's not a religious document. It's not an anti-religious document. A morality is not the same as uh, religion. And what does religion mean? And how would we actually sort of legally operationalize that? That's a very long answer because you asked such a deep 
and profound question. But I thought about it a lot. You don't have to agree with me, but I hope I've given you not a little bit of evidence, but a boatload of evidence. Please. I have hopefully a simpler question, uh, which has to do with Judge Garland's nomination. Mm -hmm. um, the Constitution says that the president shall nominate with the advice and consent of the Senate. Mm -hmm. The Senate has neither advised nor consented. Mm -hmm. Are they in dereliction of their constitutional duty? Not at all. They're perfectly permitted to not have a hearing on that. You see, I'm so glad that you're going to see now, you know, that on some things I'm citing 100% as a legal constitutional matter with the Republicans. Not at all. There is no obligation in the text of the Constitution for them to have hearings or have a vote, and even if they had a vote, they can just say no. I like Merrick Garland. I hold him in very high regard. I was in D.C. yesterday morning to do the Diane Reem show, and I almost called him up to see if he were, was free for um, um, uh, a spot of tea because that's what I sometimes do when I go down, and it thrills me when I... And he doesn't know that when I'm ever going to... And I walk into his office, and I'll tell you what actually thrills me. On his bookshelf is a copy of my book. <laughs> and, and, and he's read it, and he's got two kids, and he sent his kids. Um, they both went to Yale, and they both took my class, but forget about that. That's a joke. <laughs> what is true is I think he's a very... Uh, no, no, it's, tr it's true what I said, but that's... He is a very hardworking person, a very smart person, Midwest. He's kind of like Hillary Clinton, but without the negatives. Um, <laughs> kind of like Barack Obama, another Midwestern guy, but um, without... The, the negatives, if you met him, you would just admire him as a human being, his history of service. You might disagree with his philosophy, and that's fair game, and you can vote against him if you disagree with that. But he has no, and so I want him to be confirmed, but he has no constitutional right whatsoever to a hearing, to a vote, or to be confirmed. I'll let you in on a secret. The Constitution doesn't specify, doesn't distinguish between justices and judges doesn't distinguish between judges and other officials? What if the nomination were two days before the end of the term? Is there an obligation for the Senate to drop everything else and take up the thing, even for an assistant postmaster general? Or to be more realistic, the truth is I've actually been nominated for, for a Senate-confirmed position. It's a small one, it's not, and I'm never going to get a hearing, and I'm never going to get a vote. And, and that's fair, totally fair. Um, now, what should we do? Well, no, here's, but, but here's what we should do, in my view. Here's the best case for the Republicans. Here's what they're saying. Listen, you're talking about the swing seat on the Supreme Court, not just any seat, but the swing seat. And it's going to shift the balance because our party's been in control of this for 50 years. This freaks us out. And, and yes, you were elected president, but you don't get to do anything unless we agree. And you were elected in 2012. Guess what? We won the Senate election, our party, in 2014. And you know what we were elected to do? Stop you in every single way we could. Jam you. Just say no. And half of us were elected to just say hell no. <laughs> and that's our mandate. And that's what we're going to do. And you won one and in 2012. And we won one in 2014. So it's what you call a Mexican standoff. <laughs> and, here's what, and, and I'm not saying this to Mark. This is, I think this is a powerful argument. I told you it's a political process. By design, that's not a bug, that's a feature. They're within their rights to do that. But now here's what I do think. Because the Democrats say, you have to have a vote, you have to have a vote, you have to have hearings. No, you don't. And the Republicans say, we don't have to do anything at all. 
Here's my compromise, and I propose it the day he was nominated. Let's have hearings now and a vote after November. The people, let's use this as a teachable moment. The American people can tune in. Merrick Garland can make his case. His supporters can speak up on his behalf. His critics, who control the Senate, by the way, they have a majority, can go after him, hammer and tongs and every day um, on the cable shows uh, every evening and say why they think he shouldn't actually be the, swing just, the, the new justice on the court. The American people can look at all of that and sort of decide for themselves whether they like the Garland um, argument or the anti-Garland argument. The, this is a referendum on not just the presidency, but the, the presidency is de jure on the ballot officially. So is the, the, uh, one third of the senators. But the Supreme Court is on the ballot. Let's have hearings now. This will inform the um, uh, November election. If Hillary wins, he's going to go through. If Donald Trump wins, he's going to go down. And that's perfectly fair because it's a political process. But if she wins, he could be confirmed in mid-November because we would have had um, this conversation, this vetting process. And now the Supreme Court won't have to limp along for a second straight term, basically short-staffed. So that would, you know, it can do it. The, the, the sky has not fallen. Um, but I think it works better with nine than eight. Um, so... There's a difference between what the Constitution requires and my, what might be actually the best thing. They're not always the same thing. But the Constitution doesn't work. I do not agree with my friends on the Democratic side that what the Republicans in the Senate are doing is constitutionally wrong. In, in. I'll say one final thing. Tony Kennedy is really, because there's very few people who swing on the court who go back. But he sometimes votes with Democrats, sometimes with Republicans. How did he get on the court? In the last year of a two-term popular ideological president with the Senate controlled by the other party, he was confirmed. Ronald Reagan, as right-leaning a president as you're ever going to get, nominated, and the Senate was uh, dominated by the other party. And Barack Obama is as left-leaning a president as you're ever going to get, and the Senate is um, uh, um, uh, uh, dominated by the other party. And when Reagan tried to put through someone who was ideologically hard-edged, Robert Bork, and there's an essay on Robert Bork. He was my teacher. It's actually an essay of remembrance on the day he died, and I say some nice things about him um, that you find it very interesting um, in, in, in the book. But, but the Democrats said no to Bork, but Kennedy said, okay, here's a Republican that we Democrats can find acceptable. Obama was trying to do that. He was trying to find you know, a Democrat that Republicans could find acceptable. Um, Kennedy did get a hearing. He, um, who was Kennedy's model, role model? He grows up in Northern California, same place as I do. I have a chapter on him in an earlier book that I wrote. His role model is the sitting governor. He goes up to Sacramento, that's the state capital, the sitting governor of California, a man named Earl Warren, whose um, uh, daughter was... Tony Kennedy's sister's best friend, and Tony Kennedy used to play in that household, and Earl Warren would come to his household, and he was a Senate legislative page, and Earl Warren was a Republican that won 
the governorship of California one year on both the Republican and the Democratic tickets, the way Ike could have won as either a Republican or Democrat. Colin Powell, perhaps, today might be someone like that. And Tony Kennedy is a Republican who grows up actually sort of admiring Earl Warren and someone who actually sometimes can side you know, with, with both sides. I actually think Merrick Garland has got a much smaller personality. Tony Kennedy has a much more robust, assertive vision of judicial power. I think Garland is actually a more, has a more modest judicial vision. I think the country would be well served by him. The country is not going to lurch hard to the left. Sonia Sotomayor will not be the swing justice on the court. It will be Steve Breyer. That's all you're going to move from, from Tony Kennedy to Steve Breyer. I clerk for Steve Breyer. Steve Breyer is the Republicans' favorite Democrat. The people who got Steve Breyer confirmed are named, because I was there, Bob Dole and Orrin Hatch, because he was um, general counsel, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and all the Republicans thought he was fair to them. There's very little of that today, very little, actually, friendship across the aisle in the Senate today, the way there was even when Steve Breyer was Ted Kennedy's right hand um, um, in um, uh, late 70s. Um, and the persons that got, he wasn't Bill Clinton's first choice. The, Dole and Hatch went to Clinton and said, if you pick some leftist guy, we're going to have a battle royale. You give us Steve Breyer, well, he's a moderate, he's a sensible, sober person, we can work with him. And I'll stay afterward to talk to you all. It's an honor that you came, and I don't want you to go away feeling that I didn't answer your questions. Yeah. Thank you. I've got the question that I have is on the District of Columbia case, the gun control. Heller. Case. Heller. Yeah. And that, that, as I recall, was a policeman in the, um, in the District of Columbia who was carrying a gun, which was illegal under the statute of of the District of D.C. had such a draconian law that it in effect was a crime for an ordinary citizen to have an ordinary handgun in his home for self-protection. The, the question I have is, is the paraphrase or the pre preamble to the Second Amendment ab about the, uh, as, I, as I read it here, it's the uh, well-regulated militia. And, and it did that or did that not fit into Scalia's opinion in that case? So Justice Scalia writes an opinion. He's very proud of it. I think he gets the right result. I don't think he gives the best reasons, which is just what I said, for example, about Anthony Kennedy in Obergefell. And I have a long, I have two essays in this book on um, uh, 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 the Second Amendment. Let's play a game together. The answer is in these two pictures, and I'm going to rock your world in the next two minutes. This is, this is going to be fun. So I knew you were going to ask about that. So thank you very much. I have these images for, for certain things. Now, the Bill of Rights. My first big book for a general audience is called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. I want you just to shout out, and when I give you the prompt, the names of the famous Bill of Rights cases in American history. The bit, whether you agree with them or not, their results. The big cases about liberty and equality, the Bill of Rights cases in American history that pop into your head when we play this free association game. What are their names? Just shout them out. Dred Scott. Dred Scott. Map v. Ohio. Map v. Ohio. Cats v. U.S. Escobedo versus Illinois. Brown v. Board. Hurtado v. California. Plessy, Miranda, Gideon, 
New York Times versus Sullivan, um, Obergefell, um, Lawrence versus Texas, Griswold versus Connecticut, um, right? Brown versus... Almost none of those cases are Bill of Rights cases. Almost none. What's the Bill of Rights? First 10 Amendments. Begins with which amendment? The first. <laughs> What's the first word of the First Amendment? Congress. Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. Bridging free speech, free press, establishment, free exercise, uh, and so on. And our friends in the Tea Party would just say, Congress shall make no law, period. Congress shall make no law, exclamation point. Congress shall just make no law. It limits the federal, the Bill of Rights limits the federal government and only the federal government. It's a Tea Party reaction against a big, stinky con uh, federal government that's been created by the Constitution, and these are rights that limit the federal government and only the federal government. It begins saying Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. It ends with the Tenth Amendment. It celebrates local militias. See how we get to the Second Amendment? Local juries. It's a states' rights Tea Party thing. And that's not the world that you live in because you live in a world where the Tinker versus Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa can't abridge free speech. And New York Times versus Sullivan, Alabama can't abridge free speech. And Brown versus Board of Education of, um, of Topeka, Kansas, we're going to limit um, states and localities. And Gideon versus Wainwright is Florida. And Miranda versus Arizona. And Escobedo versus Illinois. And Griswold versus Connecticut. And I could go on and on and on. And none of those practically were actually Bill of Rights cases. Only Cass versus United States and Dred Scott involved the federal government. All the rest are state governments. Now, where do we get that from? The fort, I told you this. The most important thing after that preamble is the 14th Amendment. That first sentence is really important. We're all born citizens. Read the second sentence to me. I, I can tell you, I followed along. Second sentence, section one of the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or abridge any law which shall uh, make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What's the First Amendment? Congress shall make no law which shall abridge. What's this? No state shall make uh, or enforce any law which shall abridge. So the same language, no shall make law abridge, but now it's limiting states and localities. That's a totally different vision. That's what you call the Bill of Rights and it's Lincoln's generation. It's the tall, skinny constitutional lawyer from Illinois who understands equality and rights and all the rest. That would be Barack Obama today, by the way, just in case you missed the illusion. Okay. Does Scalia get that? No, because he's locked in founder's land. The Constitution is not to be equated just with the founding document. That's actually a pro-slavery document. It fell because of the Civil War. We made amends because of it. It's a new birth of freedom. This says, this is, this is my Lincoln tie. It says vote Republican. And you, you can do that for anything except the presidency. Um, <laughs> this time around. And you can vote for Republican you know, when it's John Kasich in four years. I might, I might vote with you on that. Um, okay. Um, now, what you call the Bill of Rights is not the Bill of Rights. It's the 14th Amendment. It's that second sentence. That's, states can't mess with stuff. If you're a Christian, you read the Old Testament through the prism of the New Testament, this later set of documents. You read the book of Isaiah as if it says, a virgin shall give birth rather than a young woman shall give birth. You read the first 10 commandments as if there is an 11th like unto it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because there's this reformist rabbi named Jesus who reinterprets this old text and, and infuses it with a new interpretation. Just so, that's why the first book is called 
the Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, Old Testament, New Testament. Read the Old Testament, Yahweh, he's a scary guy. He scares the hell out of me. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, actually, it's Abba Father. It's a different sort of uh, uh, persona. You know, God is in religion. That's very complicated, very complicated. Uh, there are reasons why John Adams, I think, gets that, you know, um, wrong. So we reinterpret the original Ten Amendments in light of the 14th. Here's the original, and Scalia doesn't do a good job of that, but Sam Alito does in the case that applies these principles against states. The big one is called City of Chicago v. McDonald, which says not just in DC, but in Chicago and everywhere else, you have a right to have a gun. States and localities can't mess with that. You have a right to have a handgun you know, for self-protection. And I can prove it to you in these two pictures. And if you want to see a little bit more about this, just Google my name in Second Amendment and you'll see Ezra Klein does an interview with me the day of Newtown and I give, tell him the history of the, the Second Amendment in two paintings. What's this one? It's the most famous political painting in America um, in the antebellum period. Anyone know what it is? It's the Battle of Bunker Hill, okay? Um, it's by John Trumbull um, who, uh, uh, and this is the founding vision. Local militias, good guys. That would be under Liberty Tree flag. This, and the, the, the flag is almost like a pieta, it's almost like a pieta. It's like Christ being lowered from the cross, very sort of religious imagery. Who are the bad guys? The central government, the jackbooted thugs, you know, the Union Jack. You know, when guns are outlawed, only the king's men will have guns. We don't like, you know, those feds. One black person just in the tiny corner of the screen. This is the original Second Amendment, very anti-federalist, military, political, communitarian, local. That's your original Second Amendment. That's not the Second Amendment we have today. Because today, we've reinterpreted the 14th Amendment. This is from Harper's Weekly right after the Civil War. Do you see how it's a pun on the earlier one? Flag of the central government in the middle there, flag of the central government in the middle there. One black person here, lots of black people here. Now the militiamen have become basically thugs and clansmen. That's not a, a, an accident. This guy is, we would call it sampling or riffing or alluding or gesturing. This is the most famous political painting in America and now the artist is explaining there's a different vision. This is, here's the vision. People have to have weapons in their private capacity, in their homes, for self-protection because they can't count on the local cops when the thugs come calling. When guns are outlawed, only Klansmen will have guns. Nationalist, I mean localist, national, the federal government. These, these are the bad guys, Jack Buddha Thugs. This is the good guy. Order, law and order, the flag of the central government will protect individual rights of individuals in their homes against state laws. Localist, nationalist. Military, all about the militia, civilian. Communitarian, individualistic. A different vision of guns in America. The National Rifle Association is founded after the Civil War by a group of ex-Union Army officers. That's where we get this individual. See, because I, I, on some things, I'm totally with my conservative friends. They're right on this. My friend Steve Breyer, for whom I clerked, is not, with due respect to him. And I'll tell you one other thing. Even if you didn't have a Second Amendment at all, 
there are unenumerated rights in America because we can't list all the rights that we have. I believe they happen to be God-given, but you don't have to believe that in order to think that um, uh, they exist. And the Ninth Amendment says there are unenumerated rights. They're not all textually listed. Now, where do we find them? I think we find them in the American tradition. We, judges shouldn't make stuff up. Griswold versus Connecticut says you have a right to contraception in your home. Here's one reason why. Because only my home state of Connecticut, of all the states ever in America, ever thought to prohibit contraception in the home even between a married couple. Because that's kind of the point of marriage is for people to have a certain intimacy and they decide you know, for themselves. So that, was, that law was literally un-American. Does it say in the Bill of Rights in so many words that that law is I don't know if it does. But there are unenumerated rights, and Griswold says it. Well, if we liberals believe they're unenumerated rights, I think conservatives get to believe that they're unenumerated rights too. We liberals believe in a right to have sex in the home. I think conservatives are entitled to a right to believe they have a right to have guns in the home. You know, I say give them both what they want. This is America. You know, I personally prefer sex, but whatever floats your boat. <laughs> I don't have a gun in my home. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to, don't ask, don't tell. You can do what you want in the privacy of your home. This is America. Um, and I've got another picture of this is America, and then I'll tell you why I can prove that this is America. Um, do I have this? This is home sweet home. This could be any state, any century. Um, and you have a right, even though the Constitution doesn't say so, to hang out on your porch with your family, to wear a hat, to play the fiddle, to raise your children, to have a pet dog. This is America. There are all sorts of unenumerated rights that we have by American tradition. Almost every state constitution affirms a right to have a gun. And it's not about militia. The word militia drops out. The framers of the 14th Amendment didn't want to talk about state militias. State militias fought against them at, at Vicksburg. So they're, they're not celebrating state militias. They're celebrating an individual right. They've reinterpreted. And our state constitutions don't talk about militias. They just say you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-protection, and even some of them for recreation and sport. Now that said, I think a lot of gun control is perfectly okay. It's, it's reasonable regulation. Do you need an, uh, a machine gun in your home for self-protection, really? Do you need armor-piercing bullets? Do you need 50 guns? Um, can we have loophole-free background checks so that felons don't get it? I believe in reasonable gun control, and it used to be said, oh, that's the first step on a slippery slope that will lead to confiscation across the board. No, it won't, because the Supreme Court won't let it. And even if the Supreme Court would, we liberals would be foolish to try to do this to our fellow citizens. We have to be tolerant of conservative gun culture. It's deeply identitarian. It's about people and their dads and hunting and, and their way of life. We ask them to be respectful of Muslims and Buddhists and vegetarians and, you know, and leftists. So we have to be equally respectful of, of their culture. No, if we're going to all get along, we actually have to understand what's important. And this is there are almost as many guns as there are Americans in America. There are probably, by best count, 300 million or so. To try to take those away would make prohibition look like a walk in the park. It would be a civil libertarian nightmare to try to pry those one by one from people's cold, dead hands. My fellow liberals, do not <laughs> do this. By the way, if you do, you will lose Michigan, you know, and you will lose Pennsylvania, and you will lose, um, you've already lost Tennessee and Kentucky and West Virginia and Arkansas. This is not the way to be a national party. Reasonable gun control, yes. Draconian confiscation, no. Last question. <coughs> Sorry. 
Could you speak to the efficacy of the Constitution as a legal document, considering if you had nine Republican constitutional lawyers versus nine Democratic constitutional lawyers, they would arrive at different decisions from the same document, each feeling independently justified. It seems to be you have a system of equations and two solutions. So how is the document independently ethical across a situation? What, aren't the justices just joting, voting along party lines? Good. That's exactly where the introduction of the book begins, because I reject that um, very hyper-political, almost nihilist premise. I believe there are right and wrong answers in constitutional law. And a bunch of things are close, but on some of these, they're actually, there are rules for the game, rules of text, rules of history, rules of structure. Um, and there are rules that the same, they're the rules that J Alexander Hamilton played by, and John Marshall played by, and Joseph Story played by, and Abraham Lincoln played by, and we can play by them today, and sometimes they have profound resolving power. I didn't say Amar thinks. On a bunch of things I said, well, my personal view is this, but actually I think the Constitution means that. Yes, in the short run, nine people of either political party can get away with things, but they can't do it in the long run. And I show in this book that they don't do it in the long run because the Constitution really does say stuff. And we, the people, actually, generation after generation, believe in the thing. Here's the problem. We don't read it. We don't know enough about it. Um, and then the nine can do anything if the citizenry is clueless about the thing or if people who really don't know what they're talking about are able to dominate the airwaves and say all sorts of stuff that just isn't true. Well, now how are you going to decide, you know, which is the right answer or not? Well, you have to read the books. You don't have to buy them. <laughs> you just have to read them because otherwise, civil, you know, our civilization dies. We are all, you have not just a, a right to vote, you have a duty to vote. And you have to do your homework to vote. You have to listen to people on the other side and track arguments down to the ground um, and actually find out if it's true or not that he was actually born in Hawaii. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Um, um, uh, you have to, and, but you actually have to learn your constitution and know the stories behind it. Not just what it says, but why it says so. What are the deeper underlying principles? And that's why I've written these books. And, and some of what I say, the Republicans like, great. Some of what I say, the Democrats like, great. Some of what I say, they both hate. That's fine too. And I could be wrong on stuff. Um, but, I show you in these books how to do constitutional law. It's, it's a game with rules like chess or like tennis. There are moves that are permissible. You know, um, you can hit the ball in a certain way and you can't bash your opponent with the racket. That's actually not the rules of tennis. You know, pawns don't go backwards. No, that's not how it works. Um, so there are actually rules, um, moves that are, when you're doing them, you're doing constitutional law. So I'll give you another. So, on Sunday, it's perfectly okay to say, I believe that X is the right answer because the Bible says so. Because this is what Jesus did, because this is what Jesus would do. Those are perfectly proper things to say in Sunday school. A, a judge can't properly say those in a judicial opinion. Um, uh, because ours is a tradition in which appeals to religious authority are not actually permitted. 
Other societies have different constitutions in which that's okay. Sharia law, law of many societies around the world, certain appeals to a religious text are themselves legal arguments, but not in our tradition. Certain, he a judge cannot say and never does, I'm voting for this because I'm a Republican. But I promise you, senators say, I'm supporting Trump because I'm a Republican. Rob Portman says that. Will, his, you know, his son Will was my student, and I'm saddened that Rob Portman says that, frankly, deeply saddened. But, you know, but it's, a, it's a valid argument. He's a Republican, and he says, that's you know, what a Republican is supposed to do. So that's a perfectly valid argument for Rob Portman to make, but not for a Supreme Court, for a judge to make when ruling on a constitutional case. You can't say, because I'm a Republican. And they don't say that in Bush versus Gore. What they do say doesn't hold up. And I said that the day it was decided. And I promise you, in the 20 years and the 15 years since, a lot of people who at the time didn't want to admit it have come over to my side, and no one has gone over to the other side. And justices who voted in Bush versus Gore have actually you know, told me and others that they were wrong, and that was an embarrassment. And, and I'm not going to go into details, but, but this book says, how do I prove that there are right or wrong answers in constitutional law? Because on most of the issues in all the other books, whether secession is unconstitutional or not, or um, the set, meaning of the Second Amendment, well, a lot of that happened before I came along. So maybe I just figured out what side won and then tell you a, an after-the-fact, just-so story. But I told you on the four most controverted uh, the issues of our time, affirmative action, gun control, citizens um, united, um, same-sex marriage, I'm telling you what the right answer is before the justices have come along. And two of the things are conservative and two are liberal, and I don't have a gun in my home. They scare me. I'm a wimp. I admit it. Um, but there, this book is trying to prove to you there actually are rules of constitutional law. And in the short run, with five votes or nine votes, you can do anything you want. But in the long run, it will not stand because the Constitution actually says stuff. Who keeps the judges honest? We do. You do. My fellow citizens do over the long run. But you can't do that unless you know the Constitution yourself. You just can't do your job as citizens, which is to keep the judges honest. That's what the chapter says about who judges the judges. That's what the book is about. It's not written in difficult language. Um, ordinary people, when I walk out on the street today, they know baseball. They know football. We could talk about, you know, who are the greatest Wolverine quarterbacks or how A-Rod compares to uh, Babe Ruth or DiMaggio or Berra or Thurman Munson or Reggie Jackson. And one out of every three people that I meet on the street can actually have an intelligent conversation with me about those issues. And yet they can't actually talk about these other things that are no more complicated than that. And the world depends on this project, baseball, which I like. Not so, so much. Um, not so much. You know, I still remember uh, Denny McLean's um, uh, 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 great uh, performance way back then. And, and, the, they, the, uh, and uh, the, the Tigers have had some good years since, but that was, that was um, third or fourth grade for me. Um, so um, so um, in the short run, you are right. It can be partisan. In the long run, I try to show in this book BS arguments do not stand. Partisan judges came up with the Dred Scott case, and you know what Abraham Lincoln said in real time? 
he, he coined a word. I love it. You know, Lincoln had him. He says, this is an astonisher in legal history, which is another way of saying, this is BS. This is just complete. And history has proved him right, you see. And today, we all look at Dred Scott and say, they just made that up. They just really did. And eight of the nine justices said, segregation is perfectly OK in Plessy versus Ferguson. And one guy, one guy, John Marshall Harlan the younger says, uh, the old elder says, no. You just made that up. It really does say equal, don't you see? It says equal. This isn't equal, don't you see? And he said, the court this day has rendered a decision that's just like the Dred Scott case. Now think of the audacity of saying that. You're alone in dissent. And you don't even need to say, I respectfully dissent. You said, you guys are as wrong as it's possible to be wrong. And if you say that every time, you're a crank. But if you say that this one time, and you're proved right, well, that's like Babe Ruth and the called shot, you know? Yes, right over there, just watch me, because you are wrong on this, says the first Justice Harlan, as Lincoln said. And history's proved them right because there really are rules. It really does say equal. Lincoln really was right on certain things. So in the short run, yes, it's a political process. In the long run, I tend to think that the better position prevails. That's the burden of the book. And with that, I think we draw to a close, and I wish you once again a very happy birthday to you. That was Akhil Ridamar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University and author of The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Rachel Bills and Kadar Jabbar edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org. You can follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.